It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Wednesday, July 22nd, 2009. I think I've officially entered the Twilight Zone. <laughs> yeah, I say that because uh, the response I've gotten from uh, yesterday's program, uh, the uh, Rob Bell's so-called gospel presentation and comparing Christianity to Mithra and Addis and stuff like that, the uh, response I've been getting was not exactly what I expected. More in a second. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chris Rosebro. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, and in today's program, uh, to uh, do some uh, comparative evidential work. Why? Well, uh, there seems to be this uh, belief about Christianity out there that somehow we just blindly believe the Bible story. You know, you ask me how I know Jesus lives. Well, he lives within my heart. Yeah, that kind of stuff. And uh, yesterday's program, we talked about uh, uh, Rob Bell. In fact, the entire program was dedicated to Rob Bell's, quote, gospel presentation. And so- something happened that I did not expect and uh, kind of showing once again that uh, Rosebro can at times have the tendency to be out of touch with reality or current of events or affairs. Um, there were several people who left comments on my Facebook wall saying, "Ah, oh, wow! This explains uh, this. This explains how to refute the claims of the first part of the movie Zeitgeist." Uh, I'm all Zeit. What? Huh? What? What movie Zeitgeist? I had no idea there was a movie called Zeitgeist out there. Anyway, uh, as it turns out, um, people were connecting dots, and more than one connecting dots between Rob Bell's claims and the claims of a movie that was released in 2007 on the internet. Basically, a web-based. Uh, movie release, if you would, uh, a documentary of sorts entitled Zeitgeist. And um, what was funny is is that the claims being made by Rob Bell mirror a lot of the claims being made by the movie Zeitgeist. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to spend some time taking a look at the claims of this movie Zeitgeist. You know, should Christians stick their head in sands and and pray that Jesus cover their eyes and cover their ears and we can't handle this this kind of attack or is this just a bunch of really poorly put together so-called facts to make a claim that really is not substantiated can be substantiated whatsoever if you just take the time to look at the evidence believe it or not there's really 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 good compelling evidence that supports the claims of the New Testament. Uh, the primary claim being that Jesus Christ was a, not only a historical person, uh, but that uh, he was none other than the uh, God of the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish Old Testament, uh, Jews being uh, fierce monotheists who were not into astrology, astronomy, uh, or, or Wicca, or anything like that, witchcraft. Uh, instead, uh, they were fierce monotheists, and Jesus Christ claimed to be none other than the one true God of the Jews in human flesh. 
Now, can we substantiate this claim? Well, funny enough, the evidence is all there. The fact that Jesus Christ was a historical person, lived in Judea, you know, had a ministry in Judea, you know, between 30 and 33 AD, was crucified under uh, procur- uh, the Roman procurator uh, Pontius Pilate, and uh, was raised from the dead are all historical fact. Uh, the, the evidence is there to support it, and uh, the movie Zeitgeist, oddly enough, makes the claim that Jesus did not exist historically. He's a pure mythological character, and the origin of this mythology is none other uh, than astrology. Yeah, Jesus is supposedly the, quote, sun god, uh, and... Uh, and all of and so they and he's just the same as Mithra and Attis and Horus and and these other deities. Now we covered that extensively yesterday, but I want you to hear the claims of this movie. And what we're going to focus in on today, for those of you who uh, who want to say, well, aren't you going to refute the Attis and, and Mithras and all that? Yeah, we did that yesterday. <laughs> so I'm not going to do the same stuff again, but we're going to attack a different uh, angle on this thing. And again. I got news for you all. Uh, Christianity has not engaged in some kind of a cover-up or a conspiracy and, uh, you know, tried to suppress the facts about Jesus Christ as actually, and, you know, and, and killed people who knew the truth that he didn't really exist. That, nothing could be further from the truth. And, uh, you know, just a, a, a common-sense, unbiased look at the evidence will uh, lead you to the conclusion that Jesus Christ not only did the uh, the biographies in the New Testament give us an accurate picture of him, uh, that they're spot on, that he was a historical person and he claimed to be none other than God in human flesh, and that he, three days after he was crucified, uh, he was um, raised from the dead. Yeah, it, it was, this is not this is not mythology. This is history, and uh, so we'll get into that a little bit today. So. Ah, you know, funny. So this is kind of a follow-up, but but then again, here's the question: You know, what the, the whole Zeitgeist movie? Just so you know, the the movie itself is rather interesting. Hey, let me pull my notes up out on this thing. And you can view it online. Um, there's nothing to be afraid of of this movie, really. If you can think critically and are willing to take a look at the at the real evidence, you don't have anything to worry about this thing. But here's here's basically. Um, what this thing does is it starts out with an attack on Christianity. have to warn you, there's some bad language in it because uh, they uh, quote George Carlin uncensored. Um, and, then it's, and then it moves to an attack on the U.S. government and then on to capitalism. So my take on the whole Zeitgeist movie, what we're really dealing with here is this is a propaganda film. And uh, funny enough, the themes of this really are Marxist, uh, and they're classical Marxists at that. Uh, remember, uh, the Marxism teaches that uh, religion is the opiate of the masses. And so they, they're, they're apparently trying to wake everybody up. And so uh, they attack Christianity uh, with really baseless facts. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's almost embarrassingly bad. And then, uh, then they make the claim that the U.S. government is responsible for the attack on the World Trade Center, um, you know, uh, the 9/11 attacks uh, back in 2001. And then they make the claim that capitalism—that's right—evil, uh, a group of secret evil international bankers are um, 
are purposely trying to get uh, you know to uh, wage wars in order to make profits, and uh, they want to they want wars to perpetuate uh, perpetuate uh, unendingly, and uh, and so you know w- w- what's the solution to all of this? You always listen to okay, what are you trying to sell me? So here here they've deconstructed Christianity, uh, the U.S. Republic uh, Republican uh, principles, and capitalism. So what are we supposed to replace it with? Uh, well. Solidarity, this concept that we are one, the power of love, and losing uh, individual identity and understanding that we are all interconnected in solidarity. That's the end uh, end point of this thing. My conclusion, what we're dealing with here in the movie Zeitgeist is none other than just Marxist propaganda. And... uh, uh, so, which leads to the question: Why does Rob Bell sound like these guys? Uh, but uh, that whole other question. But uh, again, it's just really bad journalism, just wretchedly bad, and uh, it's such selective cherry picking of evidence and concepts and and uh, stuff that you know you, you're sitting there going. Yeah, it's how would anybody believe this? Reality, though, is, is it doesn't surprise me that anybody would believe this thing. And the and the irony of the whole thing is, is that they talk about how the media and the and the U.S. government have been purposely manipulating the masses using fear. That's right, fear to control and manipulate you. And I'm watching this thing, going, wait a second. Aren't the people who put this movie together employing fear in order to manipulate the feelings and thoughts of the people watching this movie? Yeah, you know, it, it, again, it's it's one of those things where the thing I've learned is is that people who scream the loudest uh, against somebody else's sins and don't talk about grace and mercy and the forgiveness of sins, but are pointing a finger at somebody and saying, you are a sinner and you're using fear that, uh, in reality, I think what they're doing is they're engaging in projection. They're projecting their own shortcomings and their own agenda on their supposed enemies. Anyway, uh, that was the kind of juicy, relishy uh, irony of the whole thing. So without, with that being said, what we're going to do right now is I want to play for you the audio from section uh, part one of the movie Zeitgeist. I want you to hear it in context. Again, you know, the claims in here are outrageous. And if you listen to the, yesterday's program, you already have a foundation for refuting the early claims in here. But I want you know, we're going to listen to this uh, all the way through to where they get to the punchline. What's the punchline? Where are they going with this? Uh, that Jesus Christ was not a historical person who existed. He's a, he's a mythological character of the uh, astrological zodiac. And uh, like I said, I, I probably will interrupt this along the way. But I want you to hear this because this, it, you know, these attacks on Christianity are not new, uh, and uh, you, we don't need to go and get get our pitchforks and and stab the people to death or or pray for the the return of the Inquisition and the rack so that we can take these blasphemous heretics and torture them like they deserve. No, that's not even remotely the Christian response. Uh, yet that's their characterization of Christians. Instead, what do we do? We just soberly, carefully, uh, almost unemotionally, if you would, go and look at the evidence and test the claims. We have nothing to fear from an examination 
of the evidence. But then again, they try to present the evidence in here, and they do such a terrible job. We'll have to talk about it later. So we'll be playing a little bit, actually, uh, from a, a chapter of uh, Lee Strobel's book, uh, another book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. Now, you notice I, I, I highly praised uh, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for the Real Jesus, and uh, just a fantastic introductory level book into uh, into the case and the evidence in support of Christ and Christianity is the book The Case for Christ. And uh, you could pick it up as a paperback for like six bucks. I mean, it's a really cheap book, and it's a fantastic piece of journalism. And uh, Lee Strobel has, was not born and, and raised as a Christian. He was a atheist agnostic uh, reporter in Chicago, and his wife became a Christian, and he decided that he was going to set out to take a look at the evidence, really kind of more or less to kind of disprove uh, Christianity so that he can free his wife from this stupid religion, and ended up really taking a hard look at the evidence, and, and as a result of it, became a Christian. It's funny, there's uh, Christianity is, uh, the history of Christianity is filled with stories of men like Strobel, who have started out to disprove Christianity, and lo and behold, when they took an honest look at the real evidence, they ended up becoming Christians. So uh, I recommend that. If you haven't read the book, the one of the things I love about it is, is that he, he interviews a lot of really good scholars, and they, they handle the, uh, the, the scholarly evidence straight up, and it deals with uh, the eyewitness testimony, the uh, corroborating uh, evidence from outside of Christian sources, from you know hi- historians uh, that are both Jewish and uh, and Greek and Roman, and uh, it also deals with uh, uh, Jesus's um, fulfilled prophecies. I mean, there's some really really good stuff in the book, and and if you're looking for just a good layman, easy to understand from a layman's point of view introduction to the the uh, the case for uh for defending the christian faith this is a fantastic work and i can't recommend it more highly enough i mean i've read a lot of apologetic books out there and this is probably one of the easiest to grasp and just i like the way he's the the story is written around the evidence it's just fantastic all right with that being the case we're going to dive into the movie zeitgeist and uh, let's uh, listen to their claims. You'll recognize some of these uh, from uh, Rob Bell from yesterday, but here we go. This is the sun. As far back as 10,000 B.C., history is abundant with carvings and writings reflecting people's respect and adoration for this object. And it is simple to understand why, as every morning the sun would rise, bringing vision, warmth, and security, saving man from the cold, blind, predator-filled darkness of night. Without it, the cultures understood the crops would not grow and life on the planet would not survive. These realities made the sun the most adored object of all time. Likewise, they were also very aware of the stars. The tracking of the stars allowed them to recognize and anticipate events which occurred over long periods of time, such as eclipses and full moons. They in turn cataloged celestial groups into what we know today as constellations. This is the cross of the zodiac, one of the oldest conceptual images in human history. It reflects the sun as it figuratively passes through the 12 major constellations over the course of a year. 
It also reflects the 12 months of the year, the four seasons, and the solstices and equinoxes. The term zodiac relates to the fact that constellations were anthropomorphized or personified as figures or animals. In other words, the early civilizations did not just follow the sun and stars, they personified them with elaborate myths involving their movements and relationships. Okay, I'm going to point something out here. I mean, so far, I mean, this is, you know, this is nothing profound or, you know, mysterious. I mean, he's just giving an explanation for where we get the signs of the zodiac from. Now, real quick question. Can you or any of you listening who are skeptics and you've tuned into Fighting for the Faith because you want to hear what this uh, rage, raging, raving, uh, obviously uh, one-toothed uh, imbecile has to say about uh, you know Christianity and, and disproving the movie Zeitgeist, um, where in the Bible is the Zodiac clearly taught? Where in the Bible is astrology taught? In a way that uh, it's basically, you know, supported, you know, its tenets are supported. The answer to the question is, it isn't. There is no teaching in the scriptures that tell us these same stories or tell us anything about the stars and the zodiac or whatever. There's no direct correlation between uh, the Judeo-Christian scriptures, the Bible, and the teachings of the Zodiac. In fact, astrology is a competing truth claim to both Judaism and Christianity. And I, I point this out because throughout all of history, throughout both their histories, uh, astrology and Christianity have, and, and astrology and Judaism have not been partners. They have not been close cousins to each other or anything like that. And nowhere in the Bible is astrology taught. Now, this is important because what this guy in this movie here is doing, he's going to try to pull a whole bunch of verses out of context, keying in on particular words, and then reading into the biblical text that he's ripped out of context, these astrological, astrotheological concepts. But they're not explicitly taught. In fact... You would have to believe in the Bible code, the astrotheological quote Bible code, and need to pull out your astrotheological decoder ring and possibly even spy glasses in order to correctly read the scriptures in such a way that you can divine or unlock and decipher the astrotheological meanings in it. We continue. The sun, with its life-giving and saving qualities, was personified as a representative of the unseen creator or God. God's sun, the light of the world, the savior of humankind. Okay, this is an interesting play on words. Notice that he specifically said God's sun. Now, the funny thing is, is that this is just a really dumb, <laughs> dumb <laughs> trick in the uh, in the in English, the reason why is because the two words "sun" and "sun" phonetically sound the same, but they are spelled differently. It is, this is a funny little parlor game. Hang on a second here. I'm going to do a little work in the Greek here. Sun. Okay. However, for instance, in the Greek, let me review. I'm going to take this to the New Testament to the Gospels. Here we go. Okay, in the Greek, the word for sun is weos, okay? 
Um, however, the, the, and son, what I'm referring to is, you know, what that would be, uh, son, as far as my son, Joshua, or, you know, I am the son of Raymond. That, 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 the, so the term son in the Greek is weos, yet the term for the sun, that would be that big ball of fire up in the, uh, in the sky is Helios. Weos and Helios don't even remotely sound alike. So here in this movie, the zeitgeist, this guy is saying, you know, the, the Zodiac represents the sun and it's God's son. You see, doesn't that sound a lot like the quote son of God, but it's stupid. <laughs> it's stupid because son and son are two different words. They just sound alike. <sighs> Likewise, the twelve constellations represented places of travel for God's Son, and were identified by names, usually representing elements of nature that happened during that period of time. For example, Aquarius, the water bearer, who brings the spring rains. This is Horus. He is the sun god of Egypt of around 3000 BC. Okay, now we're, we're now going to get into the supposed parallels between jesus christ the god's son get it um and horus the egyptian sun god the the, the egyptian god of the sun you see there's there. he is the sun anthropomorphized and his life is a series of allegorical myths involving the sun's movement in the sky from the ancient hieroglyphics in egypt we know much about the solar messiah for instance, Horus, being the sun or the light, had an enemy known as Set, and Set was the personification of the darkness or night. And, metaphorically speaking, every morning Horus would win the battle against Set, while in the evening Set would conquer Horus and send him into the underworld. It is important to note that dark versus light, or good versus evil, is one of the most ubiquitous mythological dualities ever known, and is still expressed on many levels to this day. Broadly speaking, the story of Horus is as follows. Horus was born on December 25th of the Virgin Isis, Mary. Okay, gotta stop here for a second here. <clears throat> Does the Bible teach that Jesus Christ was born on December 25th? Answer... No, it doesn't even tell us when Jesus Christ is born. It does tell us the events surrounding his birth. And actually, in, in fact, when you read the New Testament biographies, because that's what they are, they're biographies, we find out that Jesus Christ was born when Caesar Augustus uh, basically took a census. In fact, uh, let me read from the Gospel of Luke. Let me pull this up here. And uh, the, here's the difference between all of the between the Christian claims regarding Christ and these mythological deities. So you heard the story of Horus and Set, right? Well, this was these two gods explain why there's sun and there's uh, sun during the day and and uh, why it's dark at night because it's the battle of light versus darkness. It's like a, you know myth, mythology. You know, if you understand the story of Baal. You know, Baal was, you know, claimed to uh, be, you know, locked in the underworld when the rain, and he was the god who brought rain. And so uh, when there was no rain, he was defeated and swallowed up by a, a competing god. And then when he was set free, you could tell he was set free because it was raining again. See? That's the, the thing in common with all of these old mythologies. They, they're they not grounded in a specific 
time in history. It's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. There was this battle between good and evil, between light and darkness. And you see what I'm saying? Yet the New Testament documents and the New Testament biographies are very, very different, okay? And so if we go to, like, Luke's biography, by the way, Luke is kind of like a journalist of his time. He builds his gospel by interviewing the eyewitnesses to the events. Rather than it being a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and in order to in order to explain the weather patterns and the different seasons of the year, the summer solstice and and all that kind of stuff, we read in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. You see what's going on here? Just want to point that out. So, big difference. So, uh, does it say when Jesus was born? No, we don't know when Jesus was born. In fact, I've seen pretty credible evidence that he wasn't born in December at all. Probably born in late June or early July. Um, yes, he was born of a virgin, literally. Um Hang on a second here. I want to do a little bit of work on uh, on Horus here. Okay, let's see what we got here. Horus um, was told by his mother Isis to protect the people of Egypt. He's the sun god, Egyptian de- deity associated with the sun. Um, said uh, Horus was said to be the sky. I wonder if it says anything about him, virgin. Hang on a second here. Uh, virgin. It doesn't say, you know, I'm, I'm looking up uh, references that talk about horse. It doesn't say anything about him being born of a virgin. Now, that doesn't mean that he wasn't. And Who cares? The thing is, is that, uh, hang on a second, watch this little slip here. His birth was accompanied by a star in the east, and upon his birth, he was adored by three kings. At the age- it, by the way, does this, the Bible say that uh, three kings came from the east three kings we'll talk about the magi in a minute of 12 he was a prodigal child teacher at the age of 30 he was baptized by a figure known as anup and thus began his ministry horus had 12 disciples he traveled about with performing miracles such as healing the sick and walking on water horus was known by many gestural names such as the truth the light god's anointed son the Good Shepherd, the Lamb of God, and many others. Now, this is all fine and dandy. Uh, the question I have is, uh, first of all, where do we ha- what's the primary documentation to support these claims or these so-called parallels? But the other thing is, uh, has anyone ever met Horus? Um, do we know where, uh, you know, I'm serious, you know, where, where is this Horus guy? I mean, they show a picture of the deity Horus, and he looks like he's got a falcon head. Um, and then he's got a big sun disc on his uh, head. Um, this doesn't look like anybody I know. When did he live? When, when, did, when did Horus actually live? Again, there's a huge difference between a mythology and the claims regarding the parallels here. By the way, uh, if you want a more extensive uh, rebuttal of this issue, listen to Fighting for the Faith from yesterday. That would be... Fighting for the Faith from July 21st 
on Rob Bell's uh, deconstructing Rob Bell's false gospel. We go into depth regarding the fact that all these claims regarding the par- so-called parallels between Christianity and these mystery religions. Really, when you hold it up to the light of scrutiny, for instance, the dating on all these is way, way off. You know, Addis, Mithras, late, they come after Christianity is already formed. Um, this Horus deity, you know, again, I, I'd want to see the uh, uh, the documentary evidence, but more importantly, I'd like to know who met this guy. See, Jesus is really different because the claims regarding Jesus is that he was an actual person in time and space history at a specific region in the world during a particular time of the Roman Empire. This wasn't a long time ago in the mists of foggy history. Uh, This was a very specific time, but we continue. After being betrayed by Typhon, Horus was crucified, buried for three days, and thus resurrected. Again, where does it say that Horus was crucified? By the way, uh, crucifixion, uh, I don't think it really came around until about 600 B.C. Just, you know. So I would challenge that claim because crucifixion as a form of execution didn't... I mean, here they're saying... Horus, these are attributes of him from 3000 BC, yet crucifixion didn't exist as a, as a form of capital punishment until the Romans really perfected it. And, and Well, they perfected it, but it really until about, what, 600 BC? I think that's the earliest counts we have of it. These attributes of Horus, whether original or not, seem to permeate many cultures of the world, for many other gods are found to have the same general mythological structure. Addis of Phrygia. Born- okay, now, pointing this out, he's mentioning Addis of Phrygia. Now, keep in mind, we already went through the evidence on this yesterday. At the Addis cult really doesn't even take root in the Roman Empire until late. I mean, we're talking late, mid to late second century. And really doesn't even get growing until the fourth century, long after Christianity has taken hold. One of the Virgin Nana on December 25th, crucified, placed in a tomb, and after three days was resurrected. Krishna of India, born of the Virgin Devaki, with a star in the east signaling his coming. He performed miracles with his disciples, and upon his death was resurrected. Dionysus of Greece, born of a virgin on December 25th, was a traveling teacher who performed miracles such as turning water into wine. He was referred to as the King of Kings, God's only begotten son. The Again, who who's met Addis? Any of you out there have uh, do you have any eyewitness testimony regarding Addis Dionysus, Krishna? Just, you know, again, the Christian biographies take on a completely different element because these took place in actual history. Alpha and Omega, and many others. And upon his death, he was resurrected. Mithra of Persia. Okay, we already proved yesterday regarding Mithra. They probably ripped off the, a lot of their ideas directly from Christianity, but listen. Born of a virgin on this. No, he wasn't. Mithra was born from a rock. Already we've got a problem here. This guy is just throwing out, quote, facts and claiming all of these parallels, but again. Not really doing any true comparative work here between these different mythologies. This is just a surface treatment of so-called supposed parallels. And already some of the facts are spurious. Mithra was never born of a virgin. He was born from a rock, fully grown and naked and wearing a cap. 
September 25th, he had 12 disciples and performed miracles, and upon his death was buried for three Okay, again, this is false information because there is no re- record of the death of Mithras. None whatsoever. So he was not born of a virgin. He, was, he did not die and was dead for three days. This is just patently false information. Again, listen to yesterday's program. Three days and thus resurrected. No, he never died and he was never resurrected. So you see, here already we've got a problem. This guy is being real flippant with these so-called parallel facts. And I don't even think he's really doing Addis, Mithras, Dionysus, Krishna, and uh, Addis, uh, and Horus even really do justice at all. And uh, what I would recommend you do, listen to yesterday's program and get a copy of Lee Strobel's uh, The Case for the Real Jesus and read uh, the chapter on uh, Christian uh, 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 challenge number four to the Christian faith, Christianity's belief about Jesus, where they copied from pagan religions. Again, it's not as if we've never heard of these arguments before. They've been around for a long, long time, and they've been discredited and debunked. In fact, they were discredited and debunked, you know, decades ago. Decades ago. And yet, uh, this 2007 uh, movie Zeitgeist, already we are, we're already finding factual errors in his, quote, presentation we're going to take our first break and when we come back we're going to continue with the movie zeitgeist and their really bad claims regarding christianity which really are not turning out to be very good facts at all that bad scholarship bad evidence and if you disagree with me i don't care go and get the evidence let's talk let's talk read the chapter in lee strobel's book the case for the real jesus and bring your scholars to disprove the scholarship that is presented there then we can have a conversation anyway if you'd like to email me you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com that's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can uh, look me up on facebook or follow me on twitter my name there on twitter is pirate christian we will be right back You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety with all new flavors like prosperity instant abundance it's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm sound the alarm you're gonna be uncomfortably holy what's that you want mana well how about super mana made with lightning real lightning preaching Ah. you'll be good at it it's a holy drink for men clergy 
These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no! And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies and they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, the Chief of Sinners. That's right. If you're tuning in because you think you uh, can get advice here on three easy steps on how to not be a sinner anymore, well, <clears throat> you're listening to the uh, wrong program. Uh, we don't give advice on uh, how to have a more sexually satisfying marriage. Uh, we don't give advice on uh, how to balance your budget, manage your finances, make your children obey you better, anything like that, you know, because why? (sighs) All of those things, really, if you would, are fruits of faith and fruits of repentance. Uh, And uh, the, uh, as far as I'm concerned, Christianity, your results may vary. For some people, Christianity might end up making their lives better. For some people, it might make their lives worse. And so, you know, l- listen, your, your, your results may vary when it comes to Christianity. And if you're coming to Christianity with the hope that it's going to help make you a more satisfied American consumer and suburbanite, to that I basically say, hang on a second here. <coughs> Excuse me. That's not what Christianity teaches at all. In fact, uh, things just, you, you might actually assume room temperature. You might get killed. If, and if you become a Christian in a Muslim nation, well, yeah, uh, that, uh, you know, we pray for our, our, our Christian brethren in those Muslim nations because those are people who are literally li- living under the threat of death because of their 
of their proclamation that Jesus is Lord. Anyway, I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means uh, our your financial support is vital, necessary, uh, unambiguously uh, uh, mandatory in order for us to continue bringing this radio outreach to you. You can support us a few ways, and uh, we like options here. Uh, first option is to visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. That's right. We've made them friendly in yellow because, you know, yellow is such a friendly color. But you can do that, and you can securely online instantly uh, send your gift in, or you can do it the traditional way. You can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, we're working our way through the movie, uh, part one of the movie Zeitgeist, to uh, see if we should all be rattling in our boots and 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 shaking and quivering and going, oh no, Christianity isn't true because they said that that Mithra was born of a virgin. See, already the scholarship here is uh, questionable because Mithra wasn't born of a virgin, born from a rock. Um, uh, was dead for three days. Really, where does it say that? Uh, the, all the Mithra scholars are pretty much agreed that doesn't say anything about Mithra dying, let alone rising from the dead. So, you know, here's the deal. We're get, they're getting it wrong on the facts regarding Mithras. We already know that the cult of Attis was uh, not, it didn't predate Christianity. In fact, it was uh, more than a century and a half after Christianity. Uh, so why should we believe then again? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we'll continue with the movie here because their claims, you know, they claim, they they seem to be so formidable, but they're not. He was also referred to as the truth, the light, and many others. Interestingly, the sacred day of worship of Mithra was Sunday. No, you mean there was a pagan religion that worshipped on Sunday? <gasps> no. What are the chances of that? Uh, one in seven, by the way. The fact of the matter is, there are numerous saviors from different periods from all over the world which subscribe to these general characters. You know what's funny is, uh, there were numerous saviors. You know, funny enough, Christianity is very unique. Uh, which of the saviors of these dying and rising so-called deities was the, was their death a sacrifice for the sins of the world, offering forgiveness for free to all of humanity? None of these dying, so-called dying gods, were there propitiating the wrath of God, and nor was their deaths vicarious for their followers. Just want to point that out. Characteristics. The question remains: Why these attributes? Oh no! There's a question mark on the screen. The question remains: Why these attributes? Again, you're reading way too much into these surface attributes that already we've disproven some of these parallels already. You know, I'm questioning your scholarship at the point here, Mr. Zeitgeist. Why the virgin birth on December 25th? Why oh, oh, no, not the... <clears throat> ...dead for three days in the inevitable resurrection. Why 12 disciples are following... Notice the uh, intense, dramatic music. But the thing is, is that he hasn't made his point at all. Showing similarities doesn't prove a connection. Again, the correct uh, logical fallacy that this is called is post hoc ergo propter hoc. That would be uh, after this, therefore, because of this. It's a logical fallacy. My my wife calls that logical fallacy. How does she call it? She calls it post hoc uh, poppycock. Anyway. To find out, let's examine the most recent of the solar messiahs. 
Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary on December 25th. And no, no, no. Jesus Christ was not born of the Virgin Mary on December 25th. Yes, he was born of the Virgin Mary, and truly she was a virgin. Bethlehem. His birth was announced by a star in the east, which three kings or magi followed. No, there were not three kings. Hang on a second. I want to talk about the magi here for a second. Just do a little bit of biblical work here, according to the uh, New Testament biographies. I mean, this guy is making claims about Christianity. He might as well at least get some of... At least get edumacated regarding some of these. Let's see here. Uh, Matthew chapter 2. Mm-hmm. All right, let me pull this up in the ESV. I want to make sure I got this right. Okay, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, by the way, very specific location here, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, it does not say how many there were. There were wise men, there were magi from the east, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, this is a unique phenomenon here. Now, this was a regular occurring event uh, astrologically or uh, astronomy. (laughs) Well, if this was a regularly occurring astronomical event, there we go, I said it, uh, then uh, they'd be showing up year after year after year after year, wouldn't they? You know, but they get this is something unique, something different. So uh, they've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So this is a unique astronomical event. And these wise men who are studying the stars somehow, you know, they're, they've come to the conclusion that the king of the Jews is to be born. So when Herod heard this, he was troubling all Jerusalem with him. Now I'm going to point something out here. Okay. Herod, what we know um, historically about this guy, he was not a nice dude okay just want to point this out okay if there were just three bumbling old wise men coming into town um it's highly unlikely that uh, he and all of jerusalem would be troubled about this okay the uh <laughs> troubled about what some three bumbling guys from who breezed in out of town were saying the reality is, is that uh, back in those days, traveling in Judea on the roads with g- the gifts that they had, very expensive gifts, by the way, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, <laughs> very expensive, uh, that uh, the chances of, of them arriving alive in Bethlehem, it's not like they got in the family SUV and got on the Judean Autobahn and drove to Jerusalem and Bethlehem. This was a treacherous journey. So in reality, um, there was probably a very large entourage of very well-armed men. And that's one of the reasons why Herod is and all of Jerusalem with him are troubled. Who are these guys coming out of the east? And the assembly of the chief priests and scribes and people, he inquired of them, where is the Christ to be born? They told him, Bethlehem and Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means among the, uh, the uh, least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Now, already here in Matthew, okay, just piecing this together here, um, not only do we have this event where uh, Herod and these guys are troubled, you know, these guys have come in out of town, obviously with enough strength to not be overthrown by, uh, you know, by highwaymen. 
And they're looking for the king of the Jews. They're, they're following his star, a very specific astronomical event that's not unique. I mean, that is very unique, not common. And, uh, and then we come across this passage here. Uh, they knew that the Messiah, the, the, the Christ, the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, how did they know that? How did they know that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem? Answer, it was prophesied. Was it prophesied the day before Jesus was born? Or was it prophesied um, actually quite far back in history? Well, funny enough, the prophecy here that's quoted is from the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And Micah, we know, was written 400 years uh, before these events occurred. A fulfilled prophecy is another element to the veracity you know, that provides strong evidence for Jesus being divine. For how did the prophet Micah know that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? What are the chances of that? We continue. By the way, they're much better greater than one in seven to locate and adorn the new savior he was a child teacher at 12 at the age of 30 he was baptized by john the baptist and thus began his ministry jesus had 12 disciples which he traveled about with performing miracles such as healing the sick walking on water raising the dead he was also known as the king of kings the son of god the light of the world the alpha and omega the lamb of god and many many others after being betrayed by his again you know funny enough he, he doesn't give any context for these titles just throws them out see you know there was another uh, deity that was called the king of kings by the way common title for deities by the way king of kings also that was a common title for earthly kings too hmm discipled judas and sold for 30 pieces of silver he was crucified placed in the tomb and after three days was resurrected and ascended into heaven first of all the birth sequence is completely astrological Okay, again, no, it really isn't astrological. This is, now this is where it gets fun. Okay, at this point, he told us a story about astrology. He told us a story about the origins of astrology. He then tells us a story about these ancient mystery gods, right? So he told us a story about astrology. Now he tells us a story about these ancient mystery gods. And already we know for a fact that a lot of his facts are, well, not real facts. They're off the mark. Okay. And now he tells us a, a quick synopsis of Jesus supposedly showing that there's parallels, these surfacey parallels. And that, and that surfacey is probably the best way to describe it. There's no depth here. We're just going to randomly just pick these things and throw them together and say, see, look, there's parallels. Okay? And then he's going. He, now he's going to go back and he's making the claim that uh, the, the order of events is astrological. No, it's not. The order of events are historical and they're recorded for us in the eyewitness biographies. We continue. The star in the east is Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky. Now, he's just making a claim. The star in the east is Sirius. Really? I, I just made the claim, and I pointed out the fact that if this, if this was a common occurrence uh, astronomically regarding the, uh, the star in the east, then the Magi would be showing up year after year after year after year after year. 
Okay, Sirius is, you know, there today. ...which, on December 24th, aligns with the three brightest stars in Orion's belt. Okay, so on December 24th, Sirius, a star in the east, uh, aligns with the three stars in the in the belt of Orion. Guess what the guess what those three stars are called? These three bright stars in Orion's belt are called today what they were called in ancient times, the three kings. <gasps> no, see, because there were three kings that came to see. Actually, the historical records don't say that there were three kings. There were three gifts, but where does it say the three wise men were kings? Yeah, there's a store. There's a song. We three kings of Oria. Yeah, but see, that's kind of late, don't you think? That's, that's not really biblical. We continue. And the three kings and the brightest star, Sirius, all point to the place of the sunrise on December 25th. Okay, so this is a... Okay, we'll just assume this is all correct. No reason to doubt him at this point. So on December 25th, the three kings, the three stars in the belt of Orion, line up with the star of the east, Sirius, and they point towards the, quote, birth of God's son. Notice the play on words that doesn't work, because the Greek word for son is helios, the Greek word for son, like your son, biological son born from your wife, would be huios, not helios, huios. This is just ridiculous. So, so they, they'll see those three, those four stars all line up and they point towards the birth of God's son. See, that proves it's astrological. No, it actually just proves that this is just nothing more than an evidential parlor game. It, it, you have, you almost have to be dumb to believe this. This is why the three kings follow the star in the east. Oh yeah, that's where the red. They follow this. Yeah. In order to locate the sunrise, the birth of the sun. You see, the sunrise is the quote birth of the sun. See, anyone? Ha- <laughs> I'm just finding this just so ridiculous. And so now he's showing a picture of the of the nativity. So these in the in the nativity scene, you have the three kings, you have God's son S O N, and the star Sirius. Oh. The Virgin Mary is the constellation Virgo, also known as. Okay, now that's quite a claim. The Virgin Mary is the constellation Virgo. Really, where in the Christian scriptures does it teach? That the Virgin Mary is the constellation Virgo. Anywhere? And see, here's the guy. The guy's just making an unsubstantiated claim. Funny enough, what we know is is that the Virgin Mary was an actual historical person. She was the one who carried the Messiah in her womb. By the way, she was not a perpetual virgin. That's a mythology that arose later. But here he just makes this unsubstantiated claim. See, the Virgin Mary is the Vir- is is the constellation Virgo. Uh-huh. Really? Can you prove it? 
Virgo the Virgin. Virgo in Latin means virgin. <laughs> See, you know, Virgo in Latin means virgin, so that proves it's Mary. See, because post hoc ergo propter hoc. That means, by the way, after this, therefore, because of this. Virgo is also referred to as the house of bread. So Virgo is also referred to as the house of bread. Now, not familiar with that term about Virgo, but uh, who cares? And the representation of Virgo is a virgin holding a sheaf of wheat. This house of bread and its symbol of wheat represents August and September, the time of harvest. In turn, Bethlehem, in fact, literally translates to house of bread. Oh, yeah. See, because he says that Virgo is also the house of bread. Bethlehem, which in Hebrew means house of bread. See, that? that's... This is really a stretch. Bethlehem is thus a reference to the constellation Virgo, a place in the sky. No, Bethlehem is in reference to the city of David, uh, not too far from Jerusalem. Yeah, man. Uh. Not on Earth. Oh, not on Earth. Yeah, R- wrong. Again, the New Testament biographies read as histories. Okay. Not we don't have any of this astrotheological stuff being taught, even remotely. There's no shred of any of this astrotheological stuff being taught in the scriptures. Instead, hang on a second here. Let me go back to Luke because it's the Lucan account. Let me read to you the author's introduction to uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, He's writing it to Theophilus, a God-lover. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word uh, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. So notice, uh, Luke here, if you read his gospel, um, is he talking about stuff happening in the stars? You know, other earthly events. When we get to uh, Bethlehem, is he referring to the constellation Virgo? I mean, if what this guy is saying is true, then this is really, really what Christianity teaches, isn't it? He's claiming an alternative origin and teaching of Christianity. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So if we're going to take this guy seriously, I mean, Bethlehem referring to uh, the constellation Virgo, um, we must then conclude that maybe Galilee was referring to the constellation Scorpio. Um, And Judea here, well, well, Nazareth, Nazareth was probably Taurus. Because it wasn't earthly, I mean, you know. We continue. There's another very interesting phenomenon that occurs. Very interesting, huh? Around December 25th. Or yeah, the- yeah, 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 uh-huh. By the way, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. 
Sorry, he wasn't. Winter solstice. From the summer solstice to the winter solstice, the days become shorter and colder. And from the perspective of the northern hemisphere, the sun appears to move south and get smaller and more scarce. The shortening of the days and the expiration of the crops when approaching the winter solstice symbolize the process of death to the ancients. Yes, actually, he's right. All of these mythologies that spring up are designed to explain the changes in the seasons, the death of the plants, the resurrection of the plants. It was the death of the sun. And by December 22nd, the sun's demise was fully realized. But the sun, having moved south continually for six months, makes it to its lowest point in the sky. Here a curious thing occurs. Okay, you ready for this? Yeah, here, here's the explanation. The sun stops moving south, at least perceivably, for three days. And during this three-day pause, the sun resides in the vicinity of the Southern Cross. Or Right, you see, because there, the sun resides in the vicinity of the Southern Cross. From the position of the... This, by the way, he did say that this was a northern hemisphere hemisphere phenomenon. Um, by the way, is uh, Israel, Judea, in the northern hemisphere? How far north? Well, I guess it is in the northern hemisphere. It's not south. Yeah, we continue. The, uh, you know, because it's close to the quote Southern Cross. Prux constellation. And after this time, on December 25th, the sun moves one degree, this time north, foreshadowing longer days, warmth, and spring. And thus it was said, the sun died on the cross, was dead for three days, only to be resurrected or born again. Wow. And where is all of this documented as predating Christianity? Just curious. This is why Jesus and numerous other sun gods share the crucifixion, three-day death, no, and resurrection th- no, concept. No, that's not... Again, Jesus' stories are historical. The mythological characters are all tied to the cycles of, uh, you know, of the year. And no, you're wrong. It is the sun's transition period before it shifts its direction back into the northern hemisphere, bringing spring and thus salvation. oh man how thinly can you spread that butter there dude however they did not celebrate the resurrection of the sun until the spring equinox now this is all kinds of fun so we don't celebrate the resurrection of the sun until the spring equinox and guess what this is or easter uh by the way uh dude um really we christians celebrate easter on the spring equinox Wrong. If that were the case, then the Christian celebration of Easter wouldn't be moving all over the calendar. The Christian celebration of Easter is not tied to any solar cycle. It's tied to the Jewish Passover. Why? Because Jesus was crucified on the eve of the Passover. And that date moves because the... uh, Hebrew calendar wasn't a 365-day calendar. It was more or less a lunar calendar. <sighs> Boy, this guy's smart by two by half. 
This is because at the spring equinox, the sun officially overpowers the evil darkness, as daytime thereafter becomes longer in duration than the night. Again, Christians do not celebrate Easter on the equinox. It's not tied to the equinox at all. And the revitalizing conditions of spring emerge. Now, probably the most obvious of all the astrological symbolism around Jesus... Here comes the obvious one, okay, in case you missed it. ...regards the twelve disciples. They are simply the twelve... The twelve disciples. There's twelve disciples. Twelve constellations of the Zodiac. Really, the twelve disciples are the twelve constellations of the Zodiac. So would Peter be like Taurus? Uh, which one would be Virgo? Um, you know, which, which, is, which of you men wants to be the Virgo? And uh, this is ridiculous. Again, he's just making these claims up. He's making stuff up whole cloth. I'm just making an assertion and not backing it up. See, the reason why Jesus had 12 disciples is because there's, quote, 12 constellations. Can you back any of that up with anything substantial? Anyway, we've got to take our second break, and when we come back, we're going to continue with the zeitgeist stuff. And then you know, later in the second hour, we're actually going to um, we're going to spend quite a bit of time listening to uh, portions of the audiobook, uh, The Case for Christ, on the section regarding the corroborating evidence uh, from outside of the New Testament that's, that, that verifies the historicity of Jesus. Believe it or not, this, the, the end result of all of this that we're hearing from this movie Zeitgeist is that uh, Jesus Christ isn't a historical person. Well, I got news for them Zeitgeist folks. That's just an outright patently false lie. And historically, they haven't got a leg to stand on. And we'll, ta- we'll show you how they manipulate the facts to, quote, make this uh, claim. So you don't want to miss that. And I know those of you listening on the Christian Worldview Network, uh, hour number two of Fighting for the Faith is not broadcast on that radio network. So if you want to listen to it and hear it, you can do so by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on our archives. All right, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. It's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. 
Alright, we're back. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith, straight ahead. Looking for something in my Bible here. Clever is the word I'm looking for. Uh, I think I'm going to have to find it in a different translation. Let me find this. No, it's not in the Gospels. Let me do all text. There we go. Ah, found it. <laughs> uh, details here in a second. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ. Hour number two, straight ahead of the program. This is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. In this particular case, taking on not uh, false doctrine within the church, although it's kind of odd that... Uh, uh, the darling of Zondervan Publishing, Rob Bell, is picking up on the same themes as this obvious attack against Christianity in the movie The Zeitgeist, and picking up their false uh, history and, and passing it along. Kind of odd that somebody within our camp would do something like that. Maybe it's because he's not within our camp. Well, you know, I'm just, just pointing that out. All right, I want to point something else to you here. First uh, Peter chapter 1. I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. Oh, no. Okay. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I always remind... I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see uh, to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly invented stories. When we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from the Father when the voice came from, uh, from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven uh, when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the words of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the apostle Peter uh, Second Peter chapter one verse sixteen says we did not follow cleverly invented stories, but they were eyewitnesses to the very things that they documented, and that's exactly that is exactly what the the gospels claim to be. There's no astrological, astronomical anything going on in there. This is history, not mythology. Anyway, just want to point out, there's a huge difference between, uh, if you just listen to the, the claims of the New Testament documents. You don't even have to think they're the Word of God. Just what do they claim to be? we got four biographies, a bunch of letters, and one really bizarre book by the name of uh, the Apocalypse of, of, you know, uh, of John, right? The, the Re- Book of Revelation. 
internally look at the documents. What is there any substan- is there anything to substantiate the claims within the document? The answers are yes. Absolutely. Um I would recommend reading a book like Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Christianity has nothing to fear from the evidence. Nothing. Nothing. Or Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ and its companion, The Case for the Real Jesus. Fine, outstanding works. Again, the evidence is all there. This is historical. It's it's ridiculously strong. So strong, in fact, that no other documents in antiquity have the strength and the credibility as the New Testament documents do. Nothing even comes close to the New Testament documents. They were they are early, they are historical, they are eyewitness accounts. These are not things that took place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Now, coming back to the movie Zeitgeist, uh the Mr. Zeitgeist here has just made the claim that the twelve disciples equal the quote twelve constellations and hasn't backed any of that up. Which Jesus, being the Son, travels about with. Uh, Jesus, who being the son, S-U-N? No, he's the S-O-N. Again, this is just a play on stupid English words. In fact, the number 12 is replete throughout the Bible. Coming back to the cross of the zodiac, the figurative life of the sun, this was not just an artistic expression or tool to track the sun's movement. It was also a pagan spiritual symbol, the shorthand of which looked like this. This is not a symbol of Christianity. Now he's uh, showing a cross with a circle around it. It kind of looks like the crosshairs of a target. He says this is not a Christian symbol. Really? Jesus hanging dead on the cross? Yeah, the cross is a Christian symbol. Oh, boy. It is a pagan adaptation of the cross of the Zodiac. Now, he can make the claim all he wants that it's a, quote, pagan sign of the Zodiac. And they're showing pictures of different church steeples with a cross with a circle around it. Uh, The problem is is that none of the uh, churches that he's showing there teach anything regarding the Zodiac at all. Period. In fact, Christianity has always been a competitor to and hostile to astrology. You would think that if uh, this was a truly zodiac astrological symbol and that secretly this is what Christianity is all about, don't you think Christians would be embracing this stuff? Hmm. This is why Jesus in early occult art is always shown with his head on the cross. For Jesus is the sun. The sun. Yeah, Jesus is the S-U-N. The Helios. You see, it doesn't work in other languages. Son of God, the light of the world, the risen Savior who will come again, as it does every morning. No, no, for real, Jesus is going to come again. For real. Like, really. The glory of God, who defends against the works of darkness, as he is born again every morning. You see, the, the, the whole Jesus story, it's just, just look at the sun every morning when it comes. There's Jesus rising in the, uh, in the east and setting in the west. It's just like Horus and Set. And can be seen coming in the clouds. Up. Ha 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 
and they shall see the sun coming in the clouds. <gasps> you see, Jesus is, he turned into the sun, the, the, the S-U-N. Uh, if it wasn't stupid, it wouldn't be fun. Oh, man. Just... In heaven, with his crown of thorns or sun rays. <laughs> With his crown of thorns. See, his crown of thorns. Those are sun rays. You see? Notice, he's taking all of these passages completely out of context and just stringing them together like a uh, like pearls on a string and telling a completely alternate story by doing so. This is not how you do it. You have to read these things in context. Oh, man, this is just ridiculous. Now, of the many astrological, astronomical metaphors in the Bible, one of the most important has... Astronomical metaphors in the Bible? Really? You just made a claim that there's astronomical metaphors in the Bible? Okay, here comes some creative um, storytelling with no backing whatsoever. By the way, he's just making unfounded assertions. Now, where can you point to any Christian, you know, any of our canonical writings to support these claims that he's about to make, or even any of the Christian authors and the church fathers and the early Christians? Where do they embrace these astrological, astronomical interpretations that Jesus is nothing more than just the sun rising and to do with the ages? Throughout the scriptures, there are numerous references to the age. In order to understand this, we need to be familiar with a phenomenon known as the procession. By the way, did you know that in the Bible that there are many, many uh, mentions of pigs? It's true. You know, Jesus actually cast demons out of pigs. Did you know that? Pigs are mentioned in many places in the Bible. Wonder what the uh, wonder what that means. You know, the Bible also mentions rain a few times, too. <gasps> I wonder if Jesus is a weather god. You see, here's the deal. He's just ma he's just taking these things out of context and then telling you a story about them. He's not telling you what the Bible teaches or even what Christians teach it. He's just ripped a whole bunch of stuff out of context, found some very shallow parallels, and is now telling you a story and making assertions that are not even supported by the, quote, verses that he's supposedly telling you about. <gasps> the Bible, uh, out of all the astronomical mentions of metaphors of things mentioned in the Bible, uh, it mentions uh, the, the word age, and age means something. Well, the Bible mentions a lot of things. It mentions wine. Did you know that the fruit that Noah drank of the food of the, uh, the, of the vine? He got drunk. Jesus turned water into wine. Did you? And he, not only that, he's... Then you've got the whole communion thing with wine. <gasps> I wonder what that means. Maybe, just maybe, one of the disciples is is that, that Greek god who likes to party all the time and drink wine. <gasps> of the equinoxes. The ancient Egyptians, along with cultures long before them, recognized that approximately every 2150 years, the sunrise on the morning of the spring equinox would occur in a different sign of the zodiac. This has to do with a slow, angular wobble that the Earth maintains as it rotates on its axis. It is called a procession because the constellations go backwards rather than through the normal yearly cycle. 
The amount of time it takes for the procession to go through all 12 signs is roughly 25,765 years. This is also called the Great Year. And ancient societies were very aware of this, and they referred to each 2150-year period as an age. From 43... You see, because astrologically, we can talk about the ages. 300 B.C. to 2150 B.C., it was the age... Again, he's he's just telling a story and not showing any true connection whatsoever. ...of Taurus, the bull. From 2150 B.C. to 1 A.D., it was the age of Aries, the ram. And from 1 A.D. to 2150 A.D., it is the age of Pisces, the age we are still in to this day. So apparently we're still in the age of Pisces. I thought we were in the age of Aquarius already. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Hang on a second here. Doing a Google search. Age of Aquarius. Hang on a second. Are we in the age of Aquarius yet? He says we're that's still coming up. Hang on a second here. When does it start? Yeah, well, let's continue. I'll, I'll look while he's talking. And in and around 2150, we will enter the new age, the age of Aquarius. Now, the Bible reflects, broadly speaking, a symbolic movement through three ages. While okay, he just made the claim that the Bible talk, you know, symbolically refers to three different ages. Yet none of them are explicitly taught. He's just reading in the Zodiac ages into the Bible. <clears throat> Yet... It, again, isn't explicitly taught. You have to use your astrological uh, decipher glasses that allow you to see the secret codes written in the Bible in order to divine this stuff out. Foreshadowing a fourth. In the Old Testament, when Moses comes down Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, he is very upset to see his people worshipping a golden bull calf. Okay, yeah, listen to his explanation as to why he's upset. In fact, he shattered the stone tablets and instructed his people to kill each other in order to purify themselves. Most biblical scholars will attribute this anger to the fact that the Israelites were worshipping a false idol or something to that effect. Yeah, because that's exactly what the text teaches. Why was Moses upset? Well, because they were worshipping a false god. He's up on Mount Sinai talking to the one true God, and he comes down and they're worshipping a, a... Basically, they've created a little Egyptian god for themselves. And that's exactly why he's upset. But well, let's hear Mr. Zeitgeist's explanation as to why... Uh, Moses was upset. The reality is, the golden bull is Taurus the bull, and Moses represents the new age of Aries the ram. (laughs) Really, where does it say that in the Bible? Where does it say that he was upset because they were moving from the age of Taurus to the age of Aries? Where does it say that? This is why Jews, even today, still blow the ram's horn. Oh, give me a break. Again, where does it teach that in the scriptures? You're just making this up. Moses represents the new age of Aries. Oh, yeah, so that's why he was upset. Because, you know, God was teaching him that they're moving into a different age, and they've got to get their ages straight. Don't you find this just a little bit uh, a little bit anachronistic? Um, you know, back in Moses' time, was the... Uh, astrological signs were they that were they this well developed all the way back then 
that Moses would have been able to look into the sky and say, duh, you know, hey, it's, 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 we've switched ages here. You, you guys are, you got your calendars wrong. And by the way, if, if that's really what the problem was, why did they have to kill themselves to purify themselves? Why did they have to go and uh, murder people? Wouldn't, they, wouldn't that just be like an oopsie? Oh, well, we'll check our day planner and get it right next time, Mo. <sighs> and upon the new age, everyone must shed the old age. Other deities mark these transitions as well, such as Mithra, a pre-Christian god who killed... No, Mithra really isn't... Uh, the, the, the mystery cult of Mithra, uh, as we understand it from the Roman Empire, again, late development here. ...was the bull in the same symbology. Now Jesus is the figure who ushers in the age following Aries, the age of Pisces. Okay, where does it say this? So Jesus is going to issue in the age of Pisces, you know, the twin fish. Okay, here's his evidence for it. Talk about flimsy. Here we go. Or the two fish. Fish symbolism is very abundant in the New Testament. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with bread and two fish. Maybe, you know what's funny? There's a story. Okay, we all understand. We've all, um, we've all heard of Sigmund Freud. And you know the the you know the the concept the the these sexual concepts that Freud came up with, and you know and there was a time when Sigmund Freud was speaking before a group a very large group of people, and get this he was smoking a cigar, and everyone understanding you know Freud's uh, ideas regarding you know symbols like that were kind of aghast. And somebody asked him afterwards, that is Roseboro's torturing of the story, you know, the, Dr. Freud, you know, what's with the cigar? And, some, and Freud just said, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. So here, apparently, the, uh, the story here we have is that, see, in Matthew fourteen seventeen, the secret decoder astrotheological message that's really going on here is because it, it talks about... Two fish, two fish. Jesus, there were five loaves of bread and two fish because Jesus, this is a sign, this is a symbol that Jesus was ushering in the age of Pisces. See the two fish. Yet it doesn't say anything about Jesus ushering in an age of Pisces, not in the Christian New Testament. Nor does it say any of that in any of the writings of the early church fathers. But then again, you know what their uh, what their uh, explanation for that is? Well, we would have those documents today if they hadn't have been suppressed and the people who who followed that particular early Christian tradition hadn't been murdered as heretics. The proof that they're the, the, the fact that these documents are not there to show this stuff prove prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they've been suppressed. Notice anything wrong with that argument? <clears throat> we continue. When he begins his ministry walking along Galilee, he befriends two fishermen who follow him. No! And you know what? He also befriended a tax collector. Uh, Jesus also befriended prostitutes. Hmm. Is there an astrological sign for a, a tax collector? Is there an astrological sign for a prostitute? Um, you know, just asking. 
And I think we have all seen the Jesus fish on the back of people's cars. Yes, we have. The Jesus fish. By the way, th- that's called an ichthus. Uh, do you know where that comes from? What's with the ichthus? Real simple. Real simple. It's an early Christian creed, really, if you would. And it's a symbol that had, that basically was used during a time when Christians were being persecuted and murdered during the uh, uh, the, the Roman Empire. Uh, basically, ichthus is the Greek word for fish, and they t- it's an acronym. It's Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. Okay? Uh, so if you were to take it out and just spell it out, you take the, the letters... Uh, you know, Jesus, uh, uh, Christu, uh, Son of God, the Savior. It's just, it's real simple. It had nothing to do with the age of Pisces at all. Nowhere is this explicitly taught. This guy's just making an unfounded, unsubstantiated allegation. Little do they know what it actually means. Really? It is a pagan astrological symbolism for the sun's kingdom during the age of Pisces. You see, you, you, you Christians out there, you thought all along, you know, that, you know, this little fish symbol was just, you, you all along, this was a pagan astrological symbol, and you just had no idea. If that's really what it is, don't you think that some Christian somewhere any over the last couple of thousand years would have figured this out? Also, Jesus' assumed birth date is essentially the start of this age. Gasp. At Luke 22.10, when Jesus is asked by his disciples where the last Passover would be, Jesus replies... Okay, well, watch this. Eyes. <laughs> Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water, Follow him into the house where he entereth in. See, because there's a man with a pitcher of water. Now, just a quick question. Back in um, the early first century city of Jerusalem, did they have indoor plumbing? How about flush toilets? Hot and cold running water? Anything like that? No. So if you wanted water inside of your house, how would you get it there? (gasps) I know. You would go to a well or a place where there was water being brought in via aquifer or aqueduct, and you would bring a jar with you, and you would fill it up with water, and you would carry it back to your (gasps) house. In other words, if you were living in or visited or traveled to first century Jerusalem, you would probably see as a very common occurrence um, people carrying a jar of water. This scripture is by far one of the most revealing of all the astrological references. (laughs) Really? Don't you think you're reading all of that astrological stuff into the passage? Because... It's not teaching anything astrological. It's just teaching there was a guy with a pitcher of water. The man bearing the pitcher of water is Aquarius. Oh, yeah. See, that's Aquarius. And all along, I thought it was just a guy carrying a pitcher of water who happened to have an upper room that Jesus needed. Water bearer, who is always pictured as a man pouring out a pitcher of water. Yeah, but the guy was carrying a pitcher of water in the text that you mentioned. He wasn't pouring it out. He was carrying it hmm 
He represents the age after Pisces. And when the sun... So Jesus, by this, this astrological character carrying the thing of water, he represents... Uh-huh. Notice the wild interpretations going on here. The age to come, which, by the way, hasn't even come yet. It's not here yet. God's son leaves the age of Pisces, Jesus, it will go into the house of Aquarius, as Aquarius follows Pisces in the procession of the equinoxes. Now, that's a fine story, but again, uh, don't you think just for a second that you're really, really, really stretching the implications of the story just profoundly? All Jesus is saying is that after the age of Pisces will come the age of Aquarius. So Jesus was saying after the age of Pisces will come the age of Aquarius because he told the disciples to go find a person carrying a pitcher of water. Anybody, any, any passages of scripture talking about the age of Aquarius, the age of Pisces, explicitly teaching this for us. Again, how did you come by this information again? Were you um, using magic mushrooms? Have you been using any kind of hard narcotics or hallucinogenic drugs? Fair question, because um, none of this is in the scripture, and you have to be pretty much an idiot to believe any of this stuff. Now, we have all heard about the end times and the end of the world. Yep, I'm familiar with it. The cartoonish depictions in the book of Revelation aside, the main source of this idea comes from Matthew 28.20, where Jesus says, I will be with you even to the end of the world. However, in the King James Version, world is a mistranslation, among many mistranslations. The actual word being used is eon, which means age. I will be with you even to the end of the age, which is... Oh, brother. Oh, boy. Again, this is just ridiculous. I mean, talk about flimsy. I mean, this is about as, as ridiculous as it gets. Ionios, Ion, uh, into the age of... Okay, I will be with you in... Okay, let's see. Ion. A long period of time with uh, without uh, reference to beginning or end of time gone by, the past, early. I will be with you until the end of time. I will be with you until eternity is another way of saying it. Uh, don't you think it's a little odd that he's just in, basically saying Jesus is going to be with us until the age of Pisces? How can Jesus be referring to that when he never taught that? He never talked about the age of Aquarius or the age of Pisces. And all the stuff that you're, quote, reading into the passage is just laughable. It's never taught anywhere in the Christian scriptures. You're just reading in astrology into the Bible. It's true, as Jesus' solar Piscean personification will end when the sun enters the age of Aquarius. The entire concept of end times and the end of the world is a misinterpreted astrological allegory. Oh, well, there, there you don't have to worry about the end of the world now because all he was talking about is how we're going to go from the age of Pisces to the age of Aquarius. See, that just clears it right up, just like Clearasil on zits. Let's tell that to the approximately 100 million people in America who believe the end of the world is coming. Maybe, just maybe, you think you've got this wrong there, Mr. Zeitgeist? Uh, the, the reason I say that is because, again, your case isn't built on any real evidence at all. 
metaphorical, allegorical, symbolical interpretations of bizarre passages ripped from context, you pouring into it this astrological meaning, yet nowhere is this astrological stuff taught at all. Furthermore, the character of Jesus being a literary and astrological hybrid is most explicitly a plagiarization of the Egyptian sun god Horus. For example, inscribed about 3,500 years ago on the walls at the Temple of Luxor in Egypt are images of the Annunciation, the Miracle Conception, the Birth, and the Adoration of Horus. The images... Again... Post hoc ergo proctor hoc. I mean, who who's met Horus? Has anyone seen him? Anyone? Any witnesses to his birth, death, resurrection? Any of the so-called events of his life? I mean, he doesn't look like somebody I'd like to hang out with and have a beer. But first of all, how are you supposed to have a beer with somebody who has a beak for a face? Begin with Thoth announcing to the Virgin Isis that she will conceive Horus. Then Neph, the Holy Ghost, impregnating the Virgin. And then the Virgin birth and the adoration. This is exactly the story of Jesus' miracle conception. Yeah, with one huge exception, even if you were right about the Horus story, which already I'm, I'm doubting it because you can't even get your facts straight regarding Mithras. Um, it, again, the, the big difference is, is that the story of Jesus is historical, biographical, at a very specific time and place, testified by eyewitnesses who went to their deaths, uh, being martyred and persecuted, for their testimony that they were witnesses to Christ's death and resurrection. In fact, the literary similarities between the Egyptian religion and the Christian religion are staggering. Uh, No, they're really not. Plagiarism is continuous. Plagiarism, that's quite a claim. Plagiarism. The story of Noah and Noah's Ark is taken directly from tradition. The concept of the Great Flood is... Really, that's quite a claim. The story of Noah and Noah's Ark is taken from tradition. How do you know it's taken from tradition, and how do you know it's not historical? You just make this assertion, but you don't back it up. Ubiquitous throughout the ancient world, with over 200 cited claims in different periods and times. Is it absol- Is it possible that the reason why all these different cultures have a story similar to Noah's is because all of these ancient religions, all these ancient cultures, were familiar with the story of the flood because Noah was a historical person? And it was in recent past that it had occurred? However, one need look no further for a pre-Christian source than the Epic of Gilgamesh, written in 2600 BC. This story talks of a great flood commanded by God, an ark with saved animals upon it, and even the release and return of a dove, all held in common with the biblical story, among many other similarities. And how do you know the source isn't historical? He just claims it's just a traditional mythological. How do you know it's that? By the way, Jesus Christ himself uh, attested to the fact that Noah was a historical person and that the flood actually happened. He claimed to be none other than the 
one true God in human flesh and proved his claim by raising himself from the dead three days after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Hmm. I trust Christ's credentials over this. And then there is the plagiarized story of Moses. Plagiarized story of Moses. There's apparently Moses isn't even a historical person, yet Jesus Christ said that he was. Plagiarized story of Moses. Moses apparently didn't exist. Upon Moses' birth, it is said that he was placed in a reed basket and set adrift in a river in order to avoid infanticide. He was later rescued by a daughter of royalty and raised by her as a prince. This baby-in-a-basket story was lifted directly from the myth of Sargon of Akkad. Really, how do you know it was lifted from the myth of Sargon? Similarities in the story do not prove plagiarism, my friend. And again, you just give us these so-called surface parallels, and we've already proven that many of the parallels that you've drawn in the past, in this video, aren't even correct. Of around 2250 BC, Sargon was born, placed in a reed basket in order to avoid infanticide, and set adrift in a river. He was in turn rescued and raised by Aki, a royal midwife. Furthermore, Moses is known as the lawgiver, the giver of the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law. However, the idea of a law being passed from God to a prophet up on a mountain is also a very old motif. Moses is just another lawgiver in a long line of lawgivers in mythological history. In India, Manu was the great lawgiver. In Crete, Minos ascended Mount Dicta, where Zeus gave him the sacred laws. While in Egypt, there was Mises, who carried stone tablets, and upon them the laws of God were written. Manu, Minos, Mises, Moses. <gasps> they all begin with M's. It must... That proves it. See, it's tradition, it's mythology, it's not... Tra no, it doesn't at all. Again, this is not how you prove anything. He's not really discussing any evidence whatsoever for a historical Moses, for a historical Exodus, or anything of the sort. All he's doing is telling you a story about what supposedly other religions teach and say, see, there's similarities, those are all mythologies, therefore the, uh, the Christian claims are myth mythological as well. He hasn't proven anything. In fact, his case is not proven at all. You're looking in the wrong place. You need to go actually look at real evidence. And as far as the Ten Commandments, they are taken outright from Spell 125 in the Egyptian Book of the Dead. What uh, really? Okay. The Book of the Dead phrased, I have not stolen, became thou shalt not steal. I have not killed, became thou shalt not kill. I have not told lies, became thou shalt not bear false witness. Again, can you prove this claim? You're just making these unfounded assertions and saying that, the, that all of this stuff was plagiarized. Again, you have to prove the assertion. You can't just say, they said thou, thou shalt not kill, therefore, that means that they, they were plagiarized. By the way, in the United States, we have laws against murder. <gasps> I bet you we plagiarized those. You, you see what I'm saying here? We've got a problem. There's lots and lots of human communities that have laws against lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, and other things. Does that mean that they all plagiarize them from a mythological source? 
and so forth. In fact, the Egyptian religion is likely the primary foundational basis for the Judeo-Christian theology. Bab- no, really, it isn't. Um, funny enough, it's not at all. The Egyptians worshipped many gods, and Ju- the Judeo-Christian god is monotheistic. Uh, there is only one god. And, um, yeah, in fact... If you understand the Old Testament at all, in the book of Exodus, it's a showdown between the gods of Egypt and the one true God of Israel. Claiming that, that, that one is the source for the other is ludicrous and, doesn't, and shows a complete lack of understanding of both religions. Baptism, afterlife, final judgment, virgin birth, death and resurrection, crucifixion, the Ark of the Covenant, circumcision, saviors... Holy Communion, Great Flood, Easter, Christmas, Passover, and many, many more are all attributes of Egyptian ideas long predating Christianity and Judaism. Again, I would say, prove it. Again, this shows a complete surface treatment of the two religions. Absolutely surface treatment of it. Let me give you an example, okay? A lot of people make the claim that Lutherans are nothing more than kind of like warmed over uh, Roman Catholics. And they point to the fact that Catholics and Lutherans both follow a very similar liturgy. (gasps) Catholics and Lutherans both celebrate the Lord's Supper. Catholics and Lutherans also engage in baptism. By the way, Calvinists engage in baptism too. And and, you see what I'm saying? Just because there's a similarity on the surface doesn't mean that the the two are borrowing from each other. In fact, Lutheranism has a completely different understanding of how a person is saved and made right with God uh, than do Catholics. Baptists and Catholics both practice baptism, yet Baptists have a very different understanding and teaching regarding what baptism is. Just saying, hey, listen, all these guys are all in common because they have baptism in common, they have communion in common, and they all and they all have pulpit preachers in common. No, 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 no. You have to look at what's behind these events and what do they teach and what do they mean and what's the meaning of them. This guy's just throwing out a whole bunch of, quote, similarities and say, seeing one ripped off was plagiarizing the other. That would be true if... Judaism and Christianity basically taught the same thing doctrinally doctrinally, as uh, the Egyptian religions. The surfacey parallel stuff, the crossover, maybe baptism and other stuff, doesn't mean anything. The question is, what did that baptism mean? Fundamentalist Christianity, fascinating. These people actually believe the world is 12,000 years old. I actually asked one of these guys, okay, dinosaur fossils. He says, dinosaur fossils? God put those here to test our faith. I think God put you here to test my faith, dude.
The Bible is nothing more than an astrotheological literary hybrid, just like nearly all. Okay, this is where this is the this is the end of all of this. Where are they going with this? The the, the claim that the Bible is nothing more than an astrotheological liter, literary hybrid. Again, false. Listen to these claims. All religious myths before it. In fact, the aspect of transference of one character's attributes to a new character can be found within the book itself. In the Old Testament, there is the story of Joseph. Joseph was a prototype for Jesus. Joseph was born of a miracle birth. Jesus was born of a miracle birth. No, Joseph was not born of a miracle birth. What are they talking about? Joseph was born pretty much in the ordinary way. In fact, uh, Israel, Joseph's father, miracle birth? His wife didn't, well, she wasn't able to conceive. He prayed and she conceived. But uh, Israel had two wives and two concubines. Joseph was of 12 brothers. Jesus had 12 disciples. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Brother Judah suggests the sale of Joseph. Disciple Judas suggests the sale of Jesus. Oh, man, what a complete hatchet job here. Joseph began his work at the age of 30. Jesus began his work at the age of 30. The parallels go on and on. Furthermore, is there any non-biblical historical evidence Listen. of any person living with the name Jesus, the son of Mary, who traveled about with 12 followers, healing people and the like? There are numerous historians who lived in and around the Mediterranean. Either okay, This is just patently false, and this is where we're going to focus our attention here er, uh, in just a minute. During or soon after the assumed life of Jesus, how many of these historians document this figure? Not one. This is a lie. However, to be fair, that doesn't mean defenders of the historical Jesus haven't claimed the contrary. Four historians are typically referenced to justify Jesus' existence. Now watch, he's not going to actually tell you what any of these historians say. He's just going to give a surface treatment of it and then wipe them off the table. Watch. Many of the younger, Suetonius and Tacitus are the first three. Each one of their entries consists of only a few sentences at best. and only re- A few sentences at best. We're not going to tell you what those sentences say. Oh, it's just a few sentences. You can't listen to these guys. This doesn't count. For to Christus or the Christ, which in fact is not a name but a title. It means the anointed one. Yeah, referring to Jesus, duh. The fourth source is Josephus. And this source has been proven to be a forgery for hundreds of years. Actually, he's not telling you the truth there. There's a couple of references in Josephus. And current scholarship has pretty much discovered that this is not a forgery. There may have been a little bit of manipulation of the passage. However, the passage itself is not a, not a forgery. But we'll get into that with uh, Edwin Yamauchi here shortly. Sadly, it is still cited as truth. You would think that a guy who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven for all eyes to see and performed the wealth of miracles acclaimed to him would have made it into the historical record. It didn't because once the evidence is weighed, there are very high odds that the figure known as Jesus did not even exist. So that's the whole point of all of this. What are they doing? They're telling you a story, reading into the scriptures, deconstructing Jesus, and what what happens at the end of it? He didn't even exist. And we don't even need to look at the evidence now because, oh, this is nothing more than just some astro-theological thing. We don't want to be unkind, but we want to be factual. We don't want to cause hurt feelings 
but we want to be academically correct in what we understand and know to be true. Christianity just is not based on truth. Okay, now that's the claim. Christianity is not based on truth. By the way, we Christians have nothing to fear against this kind of claim. Christianity is based on truth, historical truth, and the evidence for it is ridiculously strong. We find that Christianity was in fact nothing more than a Roman story developed politically. Really, if that was the case, and why were Christians persecuted by the Roman Empire? The reality is Jesus was the solar deity of the Gnostic Christian sect. And like all other pagan gods, he was a mythical figure. It was the political establishment that sought to historize the Jesus figure for social control. So they put this together for social control. Remember the Marxist theme, the religion is the opiate of the masses. This is what this is the claim. By 325 AD in Rome, Emperor Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea. It was during this meeting that the politically motivated Christian doctrines were established. Uh, it was So Christian doctrines were established at the Council of Nicaea. Politically motivated Christian doctrines. By the way, we have all of the records, uh, the notes, the, uh, the minutes of the uh, Council of Nicaea. And the claims he just made are patently untrue. You cannot point to any of the minutes of the Council of Nicaea to make this claim. And thus, you see, you see this stuff in the Da Vinci Code. ...began a long history of Christian bloodshed and spiritual fraud. And for the next 1,600 years, the Vatican maintained a political stranglehold on all of Europe. So for 1,600 years, the Vatican maintained a political stranglehold. You see, this is, again, a revision of history. Now, what I'm going to do right now, I'm going to switch gears, and we're going to listen to a portion of Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Now, this is going to be dealing specifically with the uh, corroborative evidence from outside of the New Testament. This is chapter 4 of the book, The Case for Christ. And this is uh, Lee Strobel interviewing Edwin Yamauchi, who we uh, listened to uh, another interview of his yesterday uh, regarding whether or not uh, Christianity borrowed from paganism, and the answer is absolutely not. And we're going to listen to Edwin Yamauchi talking about whether or not there is corroborative evidence for the existence of Jesus Christ outside of the New Testament. And unlike what this guy did, Mr. Zeitgeist Hatchet Job, uh, Yamauchi is going to actually take a look at the evidence itself and take a look at what the texts say and not just brush them aside and say, oh, this can't be true. Instead, he's going to tell you what they actually say and work with the real evidence. In fact, Yamauchi is very familiar with the claim that the, uh, the quote from Josephus is uh, a forgery, and he'll deal with that rather directly. So let me uh, turn this on for you, and uh, here is uh, uh, some audio from the book The Case for Christ. In spite of the delays, the Ailman saga shows how significant corroborative evidence can be. And the same is true in dealing with historical issues. We've already heard, through Dr. Craig Blomberg's testimony, that in the Gospels there is excellent eyewitness evidence for the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But is there any other evidence to corroborate that? 
Are there writings outside the Gospels that affirm or support any of the essentials about Jesus or early Christianity? In other words, is there any additional documentation that can help seal the case for Christ, as Bobby Lowe's testimony sealed the case against Harry Aylman? The answer, according to our next witness, is yes. And the amount and quality of that evidence may very well surprise you. The third interview, Edwin M. Yamauchi, Ph.D. As I entered the imposing brick building that houses the office of Edwin Yamauchi at Miami University in picturesque Oxford, Ohio, I walked underneath a stone arch bearing this inscription, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. As one of the country's leading experts in ancient history, Yamauchi has been on a quest for historical truth for much of his life. Born in Hawaii in 1937, the son of immigrants from Okinawa, Yamauchi started from humble beginnings. His father died just before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, leaving his mother to earn a meager living as a maid for wealthy families. While lacking formal education herself, she encouraged her son to read and study, giving him beautifully illustrated books that instilled in him a lifelong love of learning. Certainly, his academic accomplishments have been impressive. After earning a bachelor's degree in Hebrew and Hellenistics, Yamauchi received master's and doctoral degrees in Mediterranean studies from Brandeis University. He has been awarded eight fellowships from the Rutgers Research Council, National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Philosophical Society, and others. He has studied 22 languages, including Arabic, Chinese, Egyptian, Russian, Syriac, Ugaritic, and even Comanche. He has delivered 71 papers before learned societies, lectured at more than 100 seminaries, universities, and colleges, including Yale, Princeton, and Cornell, served as chairman and then president of the Institute for Biblical Research and president of the Conference on Faith and History, and published 80 articles in 37 scholarly journals. In 1968, he participated in the first excavations of the Herodian Temple in Jerusalem, revealing evidence of the temple's destruction in A.D. 70. Archaeology has also been the theme of several of his books, including The Stones and the Scriptures, The Scriptures and Archaeology, and The World of the First Christians. Though born into a Buddhist background, Yamauchi has been following Jesus ever since 1952, the year I was born. I was especially curious to see whether his long-term commitment to Christ would color his assessment of the historical evidence. In other words, would he scrupulously stick to the facts or be tempted to draw conclusions that went beyond where the evidence warranted? I found Yamauchi to have a gentle and unassuming demeanor. Although generally soft-spoken, he's intensely focused. He provides thorough and detailed answers to questions, often pausing to supplement his verbal response by offering photocopies of scholarly articles he has written on the topic. A good scholar knows you can never have too much data. Inside his book-cluttered office, in the heart of a heavily wooded campus ablaze in autumn colors, we sat down to talk about the topic that still brings a glint to his eyes, even after so many years of research and teaching. Affirming the Gospels 
Because of my interview with Blomberg, I didn't want to suggest that we needed to go beyond the Gospels in order to find reliable evidence concerning Jesus. So I started by asking Yamauchi this question. As an historian, could you give me your assessment of the historical reliability of the Gospels themselves? On the whole, the Gospels are excellent sources, he replied. As a matter of fact, they're the most trustworthy, complete, and reliable sources for Jesus. The incidental sources really don't add much detailed information. However, they are valuable as corroborative evidence. Okay, that's what I want to discuss. The corroborative evidence, I said. Let's be honest. Some people scoff at how much there really is. For example, in 1979, Charles Templeton wrote a novel called Act of God, in which a fictional archaeologist made a statement that reflects the beliefs of a lot of people. I pulled out the book and read the relevant paragraph. The Christian church bases its claims mostly on the teachings of an obscure young Jew with messianic pretensions who, let's face it, didn't make much of an impression in his lifetime. There isn't a single word about him in secular history, not a word. No mention of him by the Romans, not so much as a reference by Josephus. Now, I said a little pointedly, that doesn't sound as if there's much corroboration of the life of Jesus outside the Bible. Yamauchi smiled and shook his head. Templeton's archaeologist is simply mistaken, he replied in a dismissive tone, because we do have very, very important references to Jesus in Josephus and Tacitus. The Gospels themselves say that many who heard him, even members of his own family, did not believe in Jesus during his lifetime. Yet he made such an impression that today Jesus is remembered everywhere, whereas Herod the Great, Pontius Pilate, and other ancient rulers are not as widely known. So he certainly did make an impression on those who believed in him. He paused, then added, He did not of course, among those who did not believe in him. Testimony by a Traitor Templeton and Yamauchi had both mentioned Josephus, a first-century historian who's well-known among scholars, but whose name is unfamiliar to most people today. Give me some background about him, I said, and tell me how his testimony provides corroboration concerning Jesus. Yes, of course. Yamauchi answered as he crossed his legs and settled deeper into his chair. Josephus was a very important Jewish historian of the first century. He was born in A.D. 37, and he wrote most of his four works toward the end of the first century. In his autobiography, he defended his behavior in the Jewish-Roman War, which took place from A.D. 66 to 74. You see, he had surrendered to the Roman general Vespasian during the siege of Jotapata, even though many of his colleagues committed suicide rather than give up. The professor chuckled and said, <laughs> Josephus decided it wasn't God's will for him to commit suicide. He then became a defender of the Romans. Josephus sounded like a colorful character. I wanted more details about him so I could better understand his motivations and prejudices. Paint me a portrait of him, I said. Well, he was a priest, a Pharisee, and he was somewhat egotistical. His most ambitious work was called The Antiquities, which was a history of the Jewish people from creation until his time. He probably completed it in about A.D. 93. 
As you can imagine from his collaboration with the hated Romans, Josephus was extremely disliked by his fellow Jews. But he became very popular among Christians because in his writings he refers to James, the brother of Jesus, and to Jesus himself. Here was our first example of corroboration for Jesus outside the Gospels. Tell me about those references, I said, replied Yamauchi. In the Antiquities, he describes how a high priest named Ananias took advantage of the death of the Roman governor Festus, who is also mentioned in the New Testament, in order to have James killed. He leaned over to his bookshelf, pulled out a thick volume, and flipped to a page whose location he seemed to know by heart. Ah, here it is. He convened a meeting of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, and certain others. He accused them of having transgressed the law and delivered them up to be stoned. I know of no scholar, Yamauchi asserted confidently, who has successfully disputed this passage. L.H. Feldman noted that if this had been a later Christian addition to the text, it would have likely been more laudatory of James. So here you have a reference to the brother of Jesus, who had apparently been converted by the appearance of the risen Christ, if you compare John 7, 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, 7, and corroboration of the fact that some people considered Jesus to be the Christ, which means the Anointed One or Messiah. There lived Jesus. I knew that Josephus had written an even lengthier section about Jesus, which is called the Testimonium Flavianum. I knew, too, that this passage was among the most hotly disputed in ancient literature, because on its surface it appears to provide sweeping corroboration of Jesus' life, miracles, death, and resurrection. But is it authentic? Or has it been doctored through the years by people favorable to Jesus? I asked Yamauchi for his opinion, and it was instantly clear I had tapped into an area of high interest for him. He uncrossed his legs and sat up straight in his chair. This is a fascinating passage, he said with enthusiasm, leaning forward, book in hand. But yes, it is <laughs> controversial. With that, he read it to me. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared to them restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him, and the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. The wealth of corroboration for Jesus was readily evident. You agreed this was controversial. What have scholars concluded about this passage, I asked? Scholarship has gone through three trends about it, he said. For obvious reasons, the early Christians thought it was a wonderful and thoroughly authentic attestation of Jesus and his resurrection. They loved it. Then, the entire passage was questioned by at least some scholars during the Enlightenment. But today there's a remarkable consensus among both Jewish and Christian scholars that the passage as a whole is authentic, 
although there may be some interpolations. I raised an eyebrow. Interpolations. Would you define what you mean by that? That means early Christian copyists inserted some phrases that a Jewish writer like Josephus would not have written, Yamauchi said. He pointed to a sentence in the book. For instance, the first line says, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man. Now, that phrase is not normally used of Jesus by Christians, so it seems authentic for Josephus. But the next phrase says, If indeed one ought to call him a man. This implies Jesus was more than human, which appears to be an interpolation. I nodded to let him know I was following him so far. It goes on to say, For he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He went over many Jews and many of the Greeks. That seems to be quite in accord with the vocabulary Josephus uses elsewhere, and it's generally considered authentic. But then there's this unambiguous statement. He was the Christ. That seems to be an interpolation. Because, I interrupted, Josephus says in his reference to James that Jesus was called the Christ. That's right, said Yamauchi. It's unlikely Josephus would have flatly said Jesus was the Messiah here, when elsewhere he merely said he was considered to be the Messiah by his followers. The next part of the passage, which talks about Jesus' trial and crucifixion and the fact that his followers still loved him, is unexceptional and considered genuine. Then there's this phrase. On the third day he appeared to them restored to life. Again, this is a clear declaration of belief in the resurrection, and thus it's unlikely that Josephus wrote it. So these three elements seem to have been interpolations. What's the bottom line? I asked that the passage in Josephus probably was originally written about Jesus, although without those three points I mentioned. But even so, Josephus corroborates important information about Jesus, that he was the martyred leader of the church in Jerusalem, and that he was a wise teacher who had established a wide and lasting following, despite the fact that he had been crucified under Pilate at the instigation of some of the Jewish leaders. The Importance of Josephus While these references did offer some important, independent verification about Jesus, I wondered why an historian like Josephus wouldn't have said more about such an important figure of the first century. I knew that some skeptics, like Boston University philosopher Michael Martin, have made this same critique. So I asked for Yamauchi's reaction to this statement by Martin, who doesn't believe Jesus ever lived. If Jesus did exist, one would have expected Josephus to have said more about him. It is unexpected that Josephus mentioned him in passing while mentioning other messianic figures and John the Baptist in greater detail. Yamauchi's response seemed uncharacteristically strong. From time to time, some people have tried to deny the existence of Jesus, but this is really a lost cause, he said with a tone of exasperation. There is overwhelming evidence that Jesus did exist, and these hypothetical questions are really very vacuous and fallacious. But I'd answer by saying this. Josephus was interested in political matters and the struggle against Rome. So for him, John the Baptist was more important because he seemed to pose a greater political threat than did Jesus. I jumped in. 
Hold on a second. Uh, aren't there some scholars who have portrayed Jesus as a zealot, or at least sympathetic to the zealots? I asked, referring to a first-century revolutionary group that opposed Rome politically. Yamauchi dismissed the objection with a wave of his hand. That is a position the Gospels themselves do not support, he replied. Because remember, Jesus didn't even object to paying taxes to the Romans. Therefore, because Jesus and his followers didn't pose an immediate political threat, it's certainly understandable that Josephus isn't more interested in this sect, even though in hindsight it turned out to be very important indeed. So, in your assessment, how significant are these two references by Josephus? Highly significant, Yamauchi replied, especially since his accounts of the Jewish war have proved to be very accurate. For example, they've been corroborated through archaeological excavations at Masada as well as by historians like Tacitus. He's considered to be a pretty reliable historian, and his mentioning of Jesus is considered extremely important. A most mischievous superstition. Yamauchi had just mentioned the most important Roman historian of the first century, and I wanted to discuss what Tacitus had to say about Jesus and Christianity. Could you spell out what he corroborates? I asked. Yamauchi nodded. Tacitus recorded what is probably the most important reference to Jesus outside the New Testament, he said. In A.D. 115, he explicitly states that Nero persecuted the Christians as scapegoats to divert suspicion away from himself for the great fire that had devastated Rome in A.D. 64. Yamauchi stood and walked over to his shelf, scanning it for a certain book. Ah, yes, here it is, he said, withdrawing a thick volume and leafing through it until he found the right passage, which he then read to me. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. I was already familiar with that passage, and I was wondering how Yamauchi would respond to an observation by a leading scholar named J. N. D. Anderson. He speculates that when Tacitus says this mischievous superstition was checked for the moment, but later again broke out, he was unconsciously bearing testimony to the belief of early Christians that Jesus had been crucified but then rose from the grave, I said. Do you agree with him? Yamauchi thought for a moment. This has certainly been the interpretation of some scholars, he replied, seeming to duck my request for his opinion. But then he made a crucial point. Regardless of whether the passage had this specifically in mind, it does provide us with a very remarkable fact, which is this. Crucifixion was the most abhorrent fate that anyone could undergo, and the fact that there was a movement based on a crucified man has to be explained. How can you explain the spread of a religion based on the worship of a man who had suffered the most ignominious death possible? 
Of course, the Christian answer is that he was resurrected. Others have to come up with some alternative theory if they don't believe that. But none of the alternative views, to my mind, are very persuasive. I asked him to characterize the weight of Tacitus' writings concerning Jesus. This is an important testimony by an unsympathetic witness to the success and spread of Christianity based on an historical figure, Jesus, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he said. And it's significant that Tacitus reported that an immense multitude held so strongly to their beliefs that they were willing to die rather than recant, chanting as if to a god. I knew that another Roman, called Pliny the Younger, had also referred to Christianity in his writings. He corroborated some important matters too, didn't he? I asked. That's right. He was the nephew of Pliny the Elder, the famous encyclopedist who died in the eruption of Vesuvius in A.D. 79. Pliny the Younger became governor of Bithynia in northwestern Turkey. Much of his correspondence with his friend, Emperor Trajan, has been preserved to the present time. Yamauchi pulled out a photocopy of a book page, saying, In book ten of these letters, he specifically refers to the Christians he has arrested. I have asked them if they are Christians and if they admit it. I repeat the question a second and third time with a warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. For whatever the nature of their admission, I am convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. They also declared that the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this. They had met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses alternately amongst themselves in honor of Christ, as if to a God, and also to bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery. This made me decide it was all the more necessary to extract the truth by torture from two slave women whom they called deaconesses. I found nothing but a degenerate sort of cult carried to extravagant lengths. How important is this reference, I asked. Very important. It was probably written about A.D. 111, and it attests to the rapid spread of Christianity both in the city and in the rural area, among every class of persons, slave women as well as Roman citizens, since he also says that he sends Christians who are Roman citizens to Rome for trial. And it talks about the worship of Jesus as God, that Christians maintained high ethical standards and that they were not easily swayed from their beliefs. The day the earth went dark. To me, one of the most problematic references in the New Testament is where the gospel writers claim that the earth went dark during part of the time that Jesus hung on the cross. Wasn't this merely a literary device to stress the significance of the crucifixion and not a reference to an actual historical occurrence? After all, if darkness had fallen over the earth, wouldn't there be at least some mention of this extraordinary event outside the Bible? However, Dr. Gary Habermas has written about an historian named Thalus, who in A.D. 52 wrote a history of the eastern Mediterranean world since the Trojan War. Although Thalus's work has been lost, 
It was quoted by Julius Africanus in about A.D. 221, and it made reference to the darkness that the Gospels had written about. Could this, I asked, be independent corroboration of this biblical claim? Explained Yamauchi. In this passage, Julius Africanus says, Thallus, in the third book of his histories, explains away the darkness as an eclipse of the sun, unreasonably, as it seems to me. So Thallus apparently was saying, yes, there had been darkness at the time of the crucifixion, and he speculated it had been caused by an eclipse. Africanus then argues that it couldn't have been an eclipse, given when the crucifixion occurred. Yamauchi reached over to his desk to retrieve a piece of paper. Let me quote what scholar Paul Meyer said about the darkness in a footnote in his 1968 book, Pontius Pilate, he said, reading these words. This phenomenon, evidently, was visible in Rome, Athens, and other Mediterranean cities. According to Tertullian, it was a cosmic or world event. Phlegon, a Greek author from Caria, writing a chronology soon after 137 A.D., reported that in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, i.e. 33 A.D., there was the greatest eclipse of the sun, and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day, i.e. noon, so that stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. Yamauchi concluded, so there is, as Paul Meyer points out, non-biblical attestation of the darkness that occurred at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Apparently, some found the need to try to give it a natural explanation by saying it was an eclipse. A Portrait of Pilate Yamauchi's mentioning of Pilate reminded me of how some critics have questioned the accuracy of the Gospels because of the way they portray this Roman leader. While the New Testament paints him as being vacillating and willing to yield to the pressures of a Jewish mob by executing Jesus, other historical accounts picture him as being obstinate and inflexible. Doesn't this represent a contradiction between the Bible and secular historians, I asked? No, it really doesn't, said Yamauchi. Meyer's study of Pilate shows that his protector or patron was Sejanus, and that Sejanus fell from power in A.D. 31 because he was plotting against the emperor. I was puzzled. What does that have to do with anything? I asked. Well, this loss would have made Pilate's position very weak in A.D. 33, which is most likely when Jesus was crucified, the professor responded. So it would certainly be understandable that Pilate would have been reluctant to offend the Jews at that time and to get into further trouble with the emperor. That means the biblical description is most likely accurate. Other Jewish Accounts Having talked primarily about Roman corroboration of Jesus, I wanted to turn a corner at this point and discuss whether any other Jewish accounts besides that of Josephus verify anything about Jesus. I asked Yamauchi about references to Jesus in the Talmud, an important Jewish work finished about A.D. 500 that incorporates the Mishnah, compiled about A.D. 200. Jews, as a whole, did not go into great detail about heretics, he replied. There are a few passages in the Talmud that mention Jesus, calling him a false messiah who practiced magic and who was justly condemned to death, 
They also repeat the rumor that Jesus was born of a Roman soldier and Mary, suggesting there was something unusual about his birth. So, I said, in a negative way, these Jewish references do corroborate some things about Jesus. Yes, that's right. Professor M. Wilcox put it this way in an article that appeared in a scholarly reference work. The Jewish traditional literature, although it mentions Jesus only quite sparingly, and must in any case be used with caution, supports the gospel claim that he was a healer and miracle worker, even though it ascribes these activities to sorcery. In addition, it preserves the recollection that he was a teacher, and that he had disciples, five of them, and that, at least in the earlier rabbinic period, not all of the sages had finally made up their minds that he was a heretic or a deceiver. Evidence apart from the Bible. Gonna pause there for a second. You gotta let that sink in. If Jesus is just an astro mythological character, then why are his uh, theological enemies, the Jews of the first century, uh, writing about the, him in their uh, religious writings? Wouldn't make any sense that, uh, I mean, they didn't like Jesus. They had him crucified. If he didn't exist and was just some mythological person, then why are they writing about him? I mean, serious. I mean, the easiest way to get rid of somebody you don't like if they don't exist is to not mention them because then, you know, because they don't exist. Hmm. Bible. Although we were finding quite a few references to Jesus outside the Gospels, I was wondering why there were not even more of them. While I knew that few historical documents from the first century have survived, I asked, Overall, shouldn't we have expected to find more about Jesus in ancient writings outside the Bible? When people begin religious movements, it's often not until many generations later that people record things about them, Yamauchi said. But the fact is that we have better historical documentation for Jesus than for the founder of any other ancient religion. That caught me off guard. Really? Can you elaborate on that? For example, although the Gathas of Zoroaster, about 1000 BC, are believed to be authentic, most of the Zoroastrian scriptures were not put into writing until after the 3rd century A.D., the most popular Parsi biography of Zoroaster was written in A.D. 1278. The scriptures of Buddha, who lived in the 6th century B.C., were not put into writing until after the Christian era, and the first biography of Buddha was written in the 1st century A.D. Although we have the sayings of Muhammad, who lived from A.D. 570 to 632 in the Koran, his biography was not written until 767, more than a full century after his death. So the situation with Jesus is unique and quite impressive in terms of how much we can learn about him aside from the New Testament. I wanted to pick up on that theme and summarize what we had gleaned about Jesus so far from non-biblical sources. Let's pretend we didn't have any of the New Testament or other Christian writings, I said. Even without them, what would we be able to conclude about Jesus from ancient non-Christian sources, such as Josephus? the Talmud, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, and others. Yamauchi smiled. We would still have a considerable amount of important historical evidence. In fact, it would provide a kind of outline for the life of Jesus, he said. 
this is an important claim. Listen to what he's saying. I mean, if Jesus didn't exist and was just some astro-theological, mythological character, how is it that all of these outside the New Testament sources are going to provide us with a historical outline of Jesus' life that parallels the claims of the New Testament? Listen to what he says. Then he went on, raising a finger to emphasize each point. We would know that, first, Jesus was a Jewish teacher. Second, many people believed that he performed healings and exorcisms. Third, some people believed he was the Messiah. Fourth, he was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Fifth, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. Sixth, despite this shameful death, his followers, who believed that he was still alive, spread beyond Palestine so that there were multitudes of them in Rome by A.D. 64. And seventh, all kinds of people from the cities and countryside, men and women, slave and free, worshipped him as God. This was indeed an impressive amount of independent corroboration. And not only can the contours of Jesus' life be reconstructed apart from the Bible, but there's even more that can be gleaned about him from material so old that it actually predates the Gospels themselves. All right, he's referring there to the, uh, the Jewish Old Testament prophecies regarding Christ. All right, so there's a, a scholarly look at the actual evidence that doesn't brush things aside, but instead quotes it, looks at it, analyzes it, and tells you what it claims. So this is interesting uh, from a real scholar who's do, done real work, who can tell you what the real evidence really says. We're able to actually draw a very, a pretty good outline of Jesus's life and uh, the theological importance of his life from outside of the New Testament. In fact, Jesus, the people who were trying to get rid of Christianity uh, never claimed he didn't exist. That would have been, it, was, it would have been so easy to get rid of Christianity. Say, oh, this is nothing more than just another one of those mythological religions that we follow. But no, the Christians uh, made claims about Jesus Christ that were corroborated by his arch enemies. Hmm, hard to do if you're not a historical actual person. Well, we're going to pause there today uh, for Fighting for the Faith. Tomorrow I'll give a, uh, an outline. How do we, you know, what about the uh, New Testament documents? What, what do they tell us? Can they be trusted? We'll talk about that on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. But, faith. but obviously uh, the <clears throat> movie Zeitgeist and their claims about Jesus not even existing and not, the, the Bible being nothing more than an astro-theological book, I mean, not only does it fall flat on its face, it absolutely is obliterated, and all you have to do is apply just a little bit of thinking, and the whole thing falls apart. Sad that uh, people consider that to be an indictment against Christianity, in definitive proof that Christianity is not true and based upon a lie. Nothing could be further from the truth. Well... Uh, we're sadly at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith and need to remind you that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend on you in order to uh, continue bringing this program to you. You can support us a couple of ways. Uh, first is visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, or you can uh, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, 508 Fishers, Indiana, 
zip code 46038. Now, if you'd like to email me, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. If you disagree with me and you have some evidence that you'd like to prove that the New Testament is astrotheological, please send the evidence along. We'd love to look at it. Nothing to fear from it. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in God's grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, and his death for you on the cross. Amen. <laughs>